is huge. I mean, it's like a man. It, it's big. Kane, son. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study. Not to bring back. But to wipe them out. That's the plan. You have my word on it. All right, I'm in. Let's rock! Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts. Patrick Green. Andy Geek Girl. Um, I'm Adam Ezekiel. Welcome to the show, everyone. Welcome back to the Forbidden Planet, part two of our new Forbidden Planet series, part probably seven or eight of the first one. Um, I'm excited to be back again. We have some new patrons to get shout outs before we get rolling tonight. So just going back a few weeks. Thank you so much to Jeff DeLoft, Tom Baker, Chris and Ryan, and Darren. Uh, thank you so much for joining everybody. We have, uh, as we mentioned last time, some new stuff coming, including more of an emphasis on early access to things. So that if you don't want to wait two weeks for a new episode to come out, um, you know, hopefully we'll be on our ball enough to be able to get them out early to you. I know when Jamie edits, he's always early with them. With me, it's mostly <laughs> Jamie. <laughs> but uh, we, we will, I will be better about that. Thank you very much. Kids are vomiting in his office. Yeah, there's there's a lot. There's, there's children. It's crazy. Um, but yeah, so so tonight we're returning to this uh, little series we have going on Alien and on the legacy of Alien and on what makes it special. And to go back a, a few weeks, if you remember, we started this conversation by talking more about the lead up to alien in terms of science fiction and also horror and how the films of especially the fifties and sixties begat this renaissance of science fiction and realism in the seventies. And of course, alien, which then kind of gives birth to science fiction as we would know it in the eighties to come. Um, and, uh, you know, we talked quite a lot about 2001, talked a lot about the forbidden planet, some of the other really important films that predated alien. And tonight we're going to focus a little bit more on alien itself, which of course is something we've done quite a lot in this podcast, but we're going to look at it with fresh eyes tonight. And, uh, to kind of help us get a new perspective of an old perspective, we're going to be reading some excerpts tonight. And, uh, I'm going to hand it over to Jamie to get us started with that. Yes. Awesome. So as Patrick said, I really felt like with this return to Alien in terms of the Forbidden Planet, um, as we approach in the year approach to the release of Alien Romulus, and it's set within Alien and Aliens and hearing and knowing that Fede Alvarez is really going back to, to the Alien and Alien Isolation aesthetic, it felt right to really figure out why this film was so monumental. And what better way to do that than to get into the mind of someone who had just seen the film. So I'm going to read uh, a kind of a review. It's someone who had seen the film in 79 and is talking about it uh, within the last few years. So here it is. I had just graduated from high school when I saw this on opening night. I was slash am a sci-fi junkie. And all I knew about the movie was that it was set in space where no one can hear you scream. 
I knew there were some horror aspects to it, and even though I am decidedly not a horror fan, I still went to see it because all I knew about it was that it was gritty and more realistic than traditional sci-fi movies. Everything that you take for granted about it, we had no clue about. The showing it went to started at midnight, I think. The place was packed. As the film opened, there were murmurs here and there, little quiet conversations that could be heard but not understood. When they found the dead pilot, I knew that this was going to be far different than anything else I had seen. I remember an audible gasp from the audience as they pulled back to reveal the pilot fused to his chair. I didn't want Kane to go down the hole. When I saw what I later learned was the nursery, well, we had no idea what it was. When the egg opened and Kane leaned in, I had to remind myself it was just a movie, a phrase I'd never used before. When Kane was eating with the crew and then the chestburster scene happened, remember, no one had any notion about that. I remember wanting to leave the theater. I think several people did, but I stayed. I stayed through Brett's attack, through Dallas' attack, through, the, through Ash's betrayal. I remember initially wondering if Ash was the alien, through Lambert and through Lambert and Parker's attack. And I was so pleased that Ripley got away after killing the alien by blowing up the ship. And finally, I remember a sense of weariness and anger that I would have to sit and watch her final battle aboard the lifeboat. But interestingly enough, I also remembered this as the first time I actually got to see the creature with any clarity, marveling at both its shiny, almost beautiful look and how utterly alien it looked. I drove home that night, a scared 17-year-old, fearful of what I might encounter on the ride home. I don't remember how or if I fell asleep, but for the next several weeks, I acquired a sort of status with my friends, family, and acquaintances as having been brave enough to see that movie. In parentheses, I think it attained a status as the scariest movie ever created at the time, and I saw it. I think that's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. And it just shows you that Alien was a film that no one had ever seen. And it again, taken what we had discussed before in terms of the technology of 2001 and said, we're going to scare you to death with this. And we're going to make it as real as that film, but more real than that film. And we're going to make it claustrophobic. It's, you know, 2001 was very open and grand and uh, sprawling, whereas Alien is not any of those things. Um, it's very cloistered and closed off i just love this i love this review and uh, I, I love the wonder that you can hear in this person's account of it and that's something that i love about going to the movies um and certainly it's what i love about these movies it makes me so like deeply jealous doesn't it <laughs> that we didn't Always. get to be there for it because like there's i mean this blade runner there's a few movies like that where i just i wish i could have been there to see it in person when it came out because this was a huge was event there. <laughs> you were 40 at the time um but like th this was a movie you know this is the 70s we're talking about a post jaws 70s where there are these huge movies that everybody goes and sees and they generate huge amounts of conversation the exorcist these movies that it's like you dare each other to go see because it's so scary and then everybody talks about it because they're not saturated with 700 million things coming out every single day that you know everybody's seeing the same thing or not seeing the same thing. And alien is really an example of that. It's a movie that people, I mean, I know many people with stories similar to that. Like I've told before, my mother-in-law's dad had a, uh, a heart attack after the movie. Like it's a literal one. He, he was okay. He just, he did die, but that was two years ago. Um, he made it quite a lot past 1979, but it's a, it's a movie that was like a thing. People were passing out. People were vomiting. It was a huge news story. <laughs> I don't want to talk about what it's made of. I'm eating this. <laughs> What's the matter? The food ain't that bad, baby. <laughs> Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. 
We're going to continue reading a couple of excerpts of people who had seen the film, just again, to get a sense of what was going on. And cinema at that time was also very different. Cinema, even though it had been around, I don't know, that point, 50 years, cinema was still somewhat new. Effects were changing. Uh, going to the movies and seeing the kind of films that we were seeing, like Jaws, like Close Encounters, like 2001, even though that was a few years before, it was, there, it was, it was an incredible time in cinema history and it was still this very new thing these days it's not as new because everything can be done digitally people people aren't as wowed by cinema anymore um i think that there's yeah. a bit of a renaissance happening at the moment but this is the time where people were seeing things only they would seeing things in cinema they would only see in their nightmares and that's a pretty special thing it would be a cultural and a social event that's not so much anymore I mean, because even look at something like like Avatar to the way of whatever the well, was way of water, like that's a movie that made so much money <laughs> it like broke everyone's calculators. But it, did that cause any cultural movement? No like, one's even talking about that. Talk about like nope. You know what I mean? And and that's like the largest movie of our modern you know era. And and I I don't talk to anybody about it. I would argue Barbie. I mean Barbie, right? In the completely different vein. That's true. That was a big cultural thing. Yes. For sure. yeah. and I, Barbie made me think. Yeah. Yeah. Really and last did. night, how many Barbies did you see walking yeah. around? <laughs> many, 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 especially yeah. the weird Halloween. Ones. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think we have them. They're just definitely fewer and farther between and not like you said, there's a gazillion other things vying for our attention. So it never quite feels like the shared experience anymore, um, which is what I miss from from cinema even like in the 90s we have that you know even like early 2000s i think really before the boon of social media um and then uh, you know youtube and tiktok where we it's just everybody so many people that i've never heard of that everyone seems to know <laughs> i'm like who and it's just crazy to me that there's like literally famous people that probably you know half of us have never heard of right it's just weird to me um, so yeah, I am jealous as hell <laughs> of anyone who got to see this for the first time, um, or, or when it came out in 1979. Um, can I read a short little snippet just along the vein of like continuing with the, the scare of it all, the, the horror. So this was just a, a comment like three years ago from Reddit, the it's on a movie, um, subreddit. And somebody just asked, what was it like to have seen Alien in the theater? So random accounts, one person wrote, this movie scared the shit out of me. I had no idea and everyone in the packed audience had no idea where the alien was. It could jump out of anywhere. And adding to the dread, the spaceship was dark and creepy. We had no idea who was gonna live or die. I honestly thought Ripley was when she went looking for her cat. And Parker was going to be the hero and survive at the end. And the end, after Ripley blew up the ship, people in the theater started leaving. Everyone was convinced the movie was over. Then to find out that bastard alien was in the shuttle with her, holy shit, we all lost it. 
good times. Short but sweet. And I think I just love how he kept saying we had no idea. And I think that was the best part of this. No social media, no word of mouth, just maybe word of mouth of like, it's scary, but people literally had zero clue what was going to happen. And that's why I think it's, it still stands that test of time. Cause we're, you know, we want to, we want to return back to that feeling of seeing it the first time. I grew up in the 80s, so I had like the short opportunity of the time where people would be like, you've got to go see this thing, and I'm not going to tell you anything more about it, but you have to see it, and it's only in the theaters. There's no, you can't, you know, watch the trailer on YouTube or anything like that. So it was like a period of time, the 80s until the, you know, the mid-90s where that was a thing, but... Unfortunately, you know, now, even before a, thing, uh, a movie comes out, you can watch the trailer or on the gazillion different places. You can, you know, people have seen like, you know, ripped uh, versions of it. It's not that 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 kind of mystery is is it's kind of gone. Uh, should I read? Can I read my uh, little excerpt? So I, th- I think this is uh, uh, like a letter from the editor from uh, uh, Star Beast magazine at the time. And this was a person writing back uh, and writing basically. The impression I got was that the alien was a natural rather than a company created creature. I believe the crashed alien ship was the, was a victim of the alien. The skeleton in the ship had a hole in the chest, suggesting it, it died in the same way as Kane. The distress call was later decoded by mother. The storm was computer and found to be a warning, presumably left by the dead creature. How the company knew of these events and what they wanted the alien for is beyond me. And I think, you know, we were talking about this uh, at the previous uh, episode, about how they allowed for so many things to be left unexplained, unknown, like these mysteries just riddled throughout the, the film that's, you know, a huge part of what made people think about it and ponder it and want to go see it again. And, uh, you know, that the, as opposed to this need today to explain everything, everything has to have a, an explanation and an origin. And, uh, like, I, I love that mystery. Just that it got to stand on its own, too. You know, that's something that, as we're talking tonight, I'm really struck by because, as Adam is saying, we live in a time when. Not only is everything explained, but we get like the backstory to everything and we get the sequel treatment and the prequel treatment and the requel treatment. And we retread a lot of things just to kind of get more of it for the sake of making money, you know, and uh, which which is one of the reasons why when we have new alien quote unquote content coming, I'm not usually quite as excited about it as others in the podcast are because I feel a little bit more like. I don't want this to become a McDonald's franchise where, you know, I, I don't, I don't want like, I want everything, you know, answered and filled in and all the blanks, you know, to be, I really like the idea of you walk into a movie theater with no fucking idea what is about to happen. And, and then you never get the answers to it. Like that just lives in your mind for the rest of your life. You know, not to say I'm not excited about what's coming down the pipeline. I'm, I'm sure that we're in good hands, but I, I think it's nice to hear these early reflections because like to them, this was it. Like there was no aliens yet. There was no, you know, franchise pipeline. You know, they didn't even 
know who made the movie. Like they didn't even know who Ridley Scott was unless they saw the duelist before this. Like this was just a total mystery to them. And to walk in and to see that you imagine how fucking scary that must have been for them. Like, because it's still scary for me when I watch it now and I know it by heart. I, I mean, imagine what it was like to not actually know, like to not know that there were life cycles to this thing. Like, I mean, after, after the chest bursting scene to just have no idea what the rest of the movie was going to be like, my God, that must have been awesome. Right. Absolutely. I just want to say, which is why the title is the greatest title of a movie because it's exactly what it is it's so alien to us we had no fucking clue about any of it and i just i think it's so simple and beautiful i love I, uh, yeah one thing that i was thinking about as patrick was talking but certainly as we read these clips or these accounts it's the fact that it was alluded to earlier in our discussion but because there wasn't social media because there wasn't any of what we have today movies were magic people didn't know how these things were made people didn't see behind the scenes things unless you were a super nerd and you would you know subscribe to you know magazines like starlog like all the other ones that were really big at the time that mostly are gone now except for i think they're all out of no i don't think there's any empire okay there's empire and there's a couple of, of uk based ones but i don't think there are any more american based movie magazines uh, i mean i think that there's like Cine no cinefx is gone too isn't it Right? Cine Fantastique. Cine Fantastique. Yeah. It's Are they that. still around? Oh, God. Yeah, they're gone. Yeah. So Cinefex, I think Cinefex might still be around. I'm not really sure. At any rate, I think they, they shut down during COVID. Really? Yeah. It was the last. Yeah. But again, no one knew these things were like thieves in the night. They just all of a sudden, oh, there's this movie coming out. You saw a trailer. You didn't like now we can anticipate a movie coming out a year. And a year from now, like, oh, Alien Romulus is coming out August 16th of 2024. And we knew about that two months ago, three months ago, however long uh, when they released that. And I think part of the wonder and, and the experience of going to the movies is you're suddenly immersed in this world that is for all intents and purposes magic. And we've lost all of that. There's so, and I don't even think it's the amount of it that we have today. There is a lot of, not just Alien, of course, but everything. But because of the 24-hour news cycle and because you have like Hollywood Reporter and these big variety publishing things on a, almost a minute-by-minute -minute basis, there's no surprise anymore. There's no expectation. Now we have, and we've discussed this before, a lot of commentary or comments made about something that's going to come out in a year, either positive or negative. So thinking about all of these things, I can't even imagine what Alien was like back then. But before we go on, Patrick, did you want to read yours? Yeah, sure I do. And uh and I'm, I'm I love that we're having this this long tee up to the conversation because I think there's already such great things to talk about. But for this final excerpt, uh, I, I wanted to find, you know, a review from 1979 from the release from one of these, you know, trade publications that we're talking about to see how it was received by the industry uh, in addition to the public at large. So I found this great review uh, from Sight and Sound magazine in autumn of 1979 by Philip Strick. And uh, it's, I actually recommend it. the BFI hosts it. So if you want to go check it out in its entirety, you really should, because it gives a very full and beautifully written um, summation of kind of how it, I think it was received by a lot of people. What's interesting is when you look at reviews at the time, you know, it's pretty universally described as being scary and universally described as being beautiful, but a lot of people have small complaints about it, or they didn't quite get it the first time around, or they think it reminds them too much of something else. And, uh, 
and then it's, you know, you look online and a lot of these people have since revised their, you know, like the Ebert review is not from 1979. If you go to his website, for example, because I think this is a movie that takes time to kind of flower and to reveal itself. So anyway, so let's go back to 1979 with Philip Strick. And beauty, ultimately, is what Alien brings to science fiction cinema, from its first contemplative prowl around the superb corridors of the Nostromo to the quite magnificent sequence of, the planetar of planetary exploration, the entry of the alien spaceship through vaguely obscene orifices, I don't know about vaguely, Philip, uh, and the revelation of the vast, chilling desolation inside. The film has been designed and shot with such glowing care that the astronauts, unlike their rumpled counterparts in Dark Star, are more objects than people, parts of a general design of color and texture, models to support the magnificent encrusted spacesuits designed by John Mollo. Impractical they may be, the faceplates are constantly steaming up, but as they stumble across the hideous landscape, these armored shapes have a vulnerability that contrives to be more appealing than the people inside them, providing an unexpected and subtle link with the antagonist that they're going to meet. With the sole exception of 2001, where the hardware was all clean, antiseptic lines and lights, Alien outshines all competition in the luminous splendor of its photography. And what it lacks in substance, it more than gains. It's, it's like hard to say that with a straight face because it's so fucking sub. We have how many hundreds of episodes on this movie? Anyway, sorry, Philip. Um, <clears throat> what it lacks in substance, it more than gains in the elegant pattern of its images. Despite the shocks, the gore, and the amiable performances, Alien evades what was mundane in Star Wars and obscure in Close Encounters and reminds us once more that science fiction is the story of inner space. That's pretty fucking good. I got to say. Yeah, that's I, I, great. I mean, hmm. for him, but for him to, to arrive at that conclusion and say the film lacks substance is so crazy to me because what, what's significant about this and what I, why I love this little excerpt here is he's talking about the movies that we focused on in the first episode, right? He says basically that this this is the only thing on par with 2001 in terms of production design and cinematography for science fiction. Uh, but what's so interesting is that it's kind of the opposite of it, you know, where 2001 was clean and antiseptic. This is dirty and lived in. And then he says, you know, that Star Wars made this comfortable, right? Like Star Wars made this just things for toys and for people to use their imaginations with. And Close Encounters is something more strange and ineffable to him than Alien is somehow. Um, but Alien like turns the focus inward and reminds us that we think the frontier is out there, but the frontier is actually in our own fear inside of ourselves. So yeah, I thought that was kind of a nice way to get the conversation started tonight and to talk about what makes Alien in particular such an important film in the history of science fiction and horror. I think that's a great jumping off point. And I think to accent that or to add to that, what and I know all of us here saw aliens first. I, I think you did too, right? Um, Adam, I can't remember exactly. I, I don't think so. I mean, I was, I remember when I saw alien at nine, I think I'm pretty sure I only saw aliens later after that. Okay. okay. Yeah. So I'm just curious because all of us, excluding Adam have, have a backdoor into alien. So we, had, we had seen kind of Ripley's middle arc her middle story what how did alien sit with you guys seeing it for the first time after seeing aliens was it anticlimactic or did did you guys feel as claustrophobic and as filled with terror as everyone else did i was scared shitless 
more so than with aliens. I do remember that. The Dallas scene in particular, Lambert screaming for him. That was like the one scene that I remember even more than the chestburster. And the reason is, I think, because I also saw Spaceballs before. (laughs) I don't remember the order, but I remember knowing about the chestburster in advance, not just from aliens, not just from that scene, but I think I had either seen the Kane scene in snippets or part of that. There's a vague memory of it when I had watched it. Um, it was the other scenes that scared me more. The, you know, like the the Dallas scene, Lambert screaming, Lambert's death. Those scenes stayed with me. But I, I believe my brother and I rented it. At, we were in love with aliens. I mean, we were obsessed. So... We're like, well, we got to watch the first one. And I think just he and I watched it together and it scared us more. But I think we left after having seen it the first time, maybe disappointed. Again, we were kids. So I think we were expecting more of an action thing. And then, of course, over time, you watch it again, you watch it again, and you just get so much more out of it. We liked it. I know we liked it. But I think having seen it out of order and knowing more about it ahead of time probably dampened that experience that I am so jealous of that people had, at least initially over time. It definitely did not. I have, I've, I love it every time even more, but I think that first time wasn't, if I could go back in time and see it again for the first time, it would be, in that theater, of course. That was my experience. What about you guys? I definitely want to hear what Jamie, but especially Adam has to say, because he he saw this in the right order, but I had almost the exact same experience you had, Andy, where I my gateway into this wasn't even aliens. It was the Kenner toys as a seven-year-old and thinking that it was the coolest fucking thing I'd ever seen in my life and trying to figure out what it was from and then reading the comics and realizing, oh, this is there's a movie with this, you know, and then watching aliens and falling in love with that. And to me, a- aliens was like, this really exciting thing that was the perfect template for playing at recess with my friends. Like that was, that was it. Like we were, we were always just infiltrating, <laughs> you know, uh, like bases that have been infested with aliens um, and bringing our toys along like that. So that, that's how I got into the film. And it wasn't until alien three came out, which was the same time. Cause that came out when I was seven. So like, this is all basically happening at the same time that I, it really occurred to me that there was probably one before aliens. And that was how I came to the alien and everything had been spoiled for me. Uh, and I remember that and like my cousins did it, you know, and, and it, it just, it's that kind of thing happens. It's a famous movie. It's been around for a long time. Um, so alien similar to you was never, it, it, it wasn't the bombastic, exciting, you know, ramped up, action film that aliens was and it was also something that i kind of already knew was going to happen so i didn't really like love it the way that i loved the first one for a while and then i don't know what part of my early childhood the elision started to happen but somewhere aliens started to overtake aliens and it never has gone back and to me alien has always been the one that means more to me because of something within me that is spoken to more by it but part of me is always that kid on the playground at Island Avenue Elementary School, which doesn't exist anymore, by the way, in seventh grade, playing with my friends with the Kenner toys and loving aliens. You know? It was bought by Action Park. <laughs> 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 I don't know specifically when I saw Alien, but I do remember thinking when it started, I, it was in a 
communal living room with a bunch of people. I remember thinking, having seen aliens, and I'm a teenager at this point, thinking, wait a minute. It seemed so foreign to me. Like it didn't tonally, it felt so different than aliens, even though aesthetically there are similarities. I remember thinking like, what is this? Where are we? Like it didn't, and it was dark and it was quiet and it was unsettling to me. And Patrick has said this many times as his favorite scene when they get into the egg chamber, into the space jockey chamber and that, you know, resonant sound and just the exploration of it all. And I remember being terrified, like, what is this movie? This doesn't make any sense. Like I, I'm trying to like connect it to aliens and I can't for a minute. I just can't connect it to it. I'm thinking, how is this the first movie? This doesn't even, not that it didn't seem like they were in the same universe. It just was so tonally different. It was so reverent and ominous and atmospheric and took its time and quiet and aliens is none of those things. But what Aliens is, as we all know, is wonderful because it's a different film. And Aliens does what Alien doesn't do, and it's great. But to be pulled in slowly into Alien as a teenager after having seen Aliens, it was definitely scary for me because I didn't, I, I also didn't know what to expect. I don't know. I mean, I knew that Ripley survived, but in Alien, Ripley's this, she's not a main character until the end. Um, and that's, she's like a byproduct, essentially. She's the character that, that escaped. So I knew that, but I'm just thinking, wait a minute, why is Ripley, what? She doesn't, she seemed innocuous as a character. She just seemed part of the team. And that's exactly what she was. And I just remember trying to get my head around what I was watching. And it, it moved me in a way that Aliens and Alien 3 did not. And I think as we have continued to talk about these movies over the course of almost nine years at this point, my heart has moved from Alien 3 a little bit to Alien, not for any like story reasons, but for ambience reasons, for atmosphere reasons, for going into a world that was conjured that I have never seen conjured since. No sequel. Alien 3 tried to conjure that, and it conjures some ambience a little bit, but none of the exploration, none of the dread, really. I mean, there's a little bit of dread there, but it also moves really quickly. But there's there was just no film like Alien. And I remember, I do remember this as a kid, not wanting to watch Alien and wanting to watch Aliens more because Aliens was a little bit more comfortable and it was frankly less scary. It was fun. A Aliens was more fun, that's for sure. And it definitely speaks more to, to you know, kids, teenagers at that age. You mentioned about the, uh, you know, the uh, Ripley as a character, how at the time when the film came out, 1979, uh, Sigourney Weaver wasn't known. So uh, people also commented on, on, on the first, you know, screenings that everyone ex kind of expected Captain Dallas, Tom Skerritt to be the main character and then suddenly he dies and Ripley rises out of the, you know, throughout the, you know, the, the middle of the film into the, you know, the main character and there's, there's a lot of character analysis. I don't know if you want to go into it now about how, why, about the Ripley character specifically and why it was so, uh, groundbreaking even to this day why is alien so resonant why does it 
why is it the castle on the on the hill or whatever you want, whatever that saying is what is it about it and i think part of it is the ship and it's the first thing that we're brought into this very and it it seems like a cathedral but it's a ship it's also even in that first those first few moments it's just kind of quietly cruising in space that to me is scary already like that's space is terrifying to me when I look up into the stars, it scares me to death because it doesn't end. Patrick Smith said this many times. It's like oblivion, all of it. And if you, you know, if you're an astronaut and you end up getting your cord cut, that's it. You're done. Unless someone rescues you. And for me, the setup to alien is very much like that, where you're just drifting in space. Why, what is the ship drifting in space? And then when the, the, the computer comes on, when mother turns on to alert the crew, that's also, to me, I don't know about you guys, but that was very scary as well, because they're not sounds that I had heard before. You see the reflection on that helmet. I think it's a helmet, although I don't know why that helmet's sitting there. Um, and then you, you know, we're, we're taken around the ship and everything again is this hushed reverie and you don't really know where you are and it doesn't it really feel, and it, it, it does take its time. And I don't know about you guys, but initially that ship does not feel like home that ship feels scary and i almost sense a little bit in that movie um oh my god i always remember i always forget the name where they go to the ship and it's the crew had all died and it riffs off alien event horizon the way of water (laughs) (laughs) no no but the ship initially for me is that whole space is that whole opening sequence is really scary to me i don't know about you I gotta say, it's not it's not scary to me, and it never has been. Partly because of the amount of like lived activity that you see in it, the evidence of people having been there. What's scary about it, though, is that it feels almost post-human, and I think that is what's so interesting about the beginning. To me, the ship itself feels safe, and it feels kind of cocoon-like, and it feels like it feels like the brig of a ship, you know, Uh, like an ocean-bearing ship, fairing ship. Um, but the uh, but the fact that there's nobody there for so long in the beginning is what makes it gradually get frightening, I think. And the way that it's shot, and we've talked about this a few times, um, and credit to the Alien Minute podcast actually for being the first place I ever heard references. But the fact that there are um, that there's rustling wind inside the ship is really unsettling. But it's one of those things that you don't even notice the first 10 times you watch the movie. It doesn't even occur to you, like, why would the pages be ruffling in front of the camera right now, right? Um, that's like something that just it, just, it just feeds into this overall sense of something liminal, I think. Something kind of neither here nor there, something li- alive and yet dead, something sarcophagal, something, something's off, you know? And, uh, and then when, of course, when the monitor flips on and mother wakes up like that, that's a, I mean, for one thing, it's a legitimate jump scare, right? Like the movie is completely silent except for the, the, the ambient, you know, Nostromo noise. And then there's this huge sound, but also, um, like it is such a clear storytelling device to have the ship turn on without any human there attending to it because it sets up everything like in that first the introductory two minutes of the film we have everything we need to understand where we're going because we know that like this is not a story um about an environment in which people are dominant or an environment that people are supposed to be in this is something after us this is something before us 
And so the fact that it's alien is, is we're wading into something we don't have a template for. And just one thing uh, briefly, Jamie, you brought up a great point about why space is scary. And, you know, it, thinking about when, you know, a, an astronaut having, you know, their tether severed and drifting off into space and how that's very elementally terrifying for, for I think I could say all of us. It's scary in a way that somebody who is drifting from a ship, you know, if, if so, say there's a, a free diver and they're down low and they run out of oxygen or they get a gas bubble or something happens and they drown, right? That's something scary, but it's not something terrifying. Like it's something that I can I can conceptualize better for some reason. And that obviously is a tragedy and it's something that I would not want to happen to anyone, but I can kind of understand it. If you drift off into space and you're outside of the gravitational tether of another body, like that's like such a different type of scary to me, right? Even though it's 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 structurally, it's the same thing. It's losing you losing your you know grip on terra firma, right? But there's something so scary about that. And Alien really kind of feels like that. Like it feels like what it would mean to, to be misdirected when you thought you were going home and to be somewhere else entirely that you were not prepared for drifting off into something you've never seen before. Yeah, it's like, you know, the, 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 that same analogy with the diver, just add, add a shark into there that kind of turns, you know, terrifying. Uh, we were talking about the... Uh, the ship, and I think that definitely the ship is a character in this film. And it's, uh, Jamie, you said that you find like the, the design of the ship kind of unsettling. I kind of developed my, my view on this uh, since since watching it so many times. And I think it kind of, I separated it into like two sections. One is the is the living deck, the A deck, the living parts of it, except for the, for the, uh, for the uh, cockpit it's all very lit you know cushioned especially the the you know the corridor to the to the sleeping chambers is all like padded and lit and it has these you know these shapes that are also feminine i think by design the sleeping chamber it's also it's it, it, the, the scene is kind of like a like a birth scene the, the movie starts with you know the, the ship coming alive and then the children are birthed. There's so many like subliminal messages going on there. The, the, the fact that the, the name of the computer is mother, that the, the, the mother control room, it's also like, like a womb. And Dallas, what does he do? He goes to that womb room to ask for answers. And I think that in a way that all of this design of the of also like the 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 mess hall that it's lit that it's also padded uh like very like kind of fun like to sit around there and you know they they're having all these meals and it's kind of to give the crew a false sense of safety that's how I feel from that uh from those scenes from that design and later you know in the film the the ship in a way kind of turns against Ripley. So there, there's a lot, there's a lot of like of, of subliminal games, mind tricks going on in this, in these, uh, the, the design of the, of those parts of the ship. And I think that's on purpose. We're going to take a break and be right back. Are you interested in even more from perfect organism, the alien saga podcast? We have hundreds of hours of discussion and film reviews just waiting for you to dive into. 
Go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support and sign up for our Patreon starting at just $4 a month. Your membership will give you access to Framerate, our Patreon-exclusive film review show, and our newly launched Hive Experience, where we cover the Alien Extended Universe, Blade Runner, and beyond. Join us. Yeah, and going back, I, I agree. And and referencing the cushioning, like the white padding, I always thought of, you know, those rooms you see in like psychiatric hospitals, right, where they it's very sort of bare and austere, but but sort of cushioned, right? So they're not a danger to themselves. So there's that false sense of security, but it also conjures up that slow, unra- like psychiatric unraveling, right? The the terror takes hold, and then they're all just starting to lose it. Some quicker than others, some more obvious than others. So that always reminded me of that too, like the the whole psychiatry, you know, psych- psychology really of of what it must be like, like you were saying, Patrick, of drifting, right? And how terrifying that is, knowing you're farther and farther adrift from where you are with this thing. It's almost like the house becomes a prison. So there are, to your point, Adam, you know, you, you have the different levels and certainly like where Brett and Parker work, that's more ominous. It's, it's, you know, it's, what do you call that section of the ship? Uh, the engineering like deck. Like the, like yeah. the, the engineering deck. Yeah. Technical yeah. So deck. the engineering deck is more technical. There's going to be pipes yeah. and tubes and all sorts of things happening. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to be pretty and, and welcoming because it's not supposed to be, it's supposed to be very utilitarian and industrial. So that makes sense. But to a point that you made, Andy, that I just had never even thought of before, when you referenced the padding, and it does seem sort of like an, an insane asylum or, or, or a doctor, you know, like an extreme, like when people have to be committed, and it becomes that way to these to this crew, where they're then imprisoned in this ship that is now not a home, it is a death trap, but there's padding. <laughs> <laughs> Without that ship being the way it is, we wouldn't have the film like the film wouldn't be the film that it is the level of detail they went through to create that create every specific detail of it and to realize i mean obviously you know you have people doing their job and if they're doing their job they're going to know that they can't just build some cockpit and say oh you know here's a ship and here's a mess hall like they have to it's got to be believable and it was so believable that they built the entire ship um as connected uh, yeah, connected all of it. And in order to get set. into the set, you had to walk into the ship. So if you're going to be shooting in the mess hall, you have to walk into the mess hall. If you're going to shoot in engineering or whatever, you have to go to that area via a tunnel, via a tube. So what we're feeling is li- literal. It wasn't just, oh, the set in the studio here and the set in the studio here. It was all there. And the actors were in it too. The and there was no escape. Yeah, there was no escape for them. They had to literally physically walk into where they needed to be. So it almost through alchemy became what we saw. And uh, again, we've seen the Sulaco. We've seen, I don't know what other ships. Okay, maybe the the Prometheus. We've seen the Covenant. Those two ships, those three ships do not even touch the level of expertise, in my opinion, that we see in Alien.
I think uh, uh, like building on that uh, a part, another aspect of what made made this film so unique is that they had uh, the the production design had two teams. They had one team led by uh, Michael Seymour that did the like the human side, what Ridley Scott calls the uh, earthworks, and they had Giger's team separate working on the alien side. So like the 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 planet, the derelict, the creature completely separate if you had like the same people working on all of the sets in the film it would you know they, they wouldn't have the separation the stark separation and just andy on something you just mentioned about um about the set uh resembling kind of like a psych ward an interesting detail that i discovered about the uniforms for example so ash's uniform it's a sea foam green blue it took me months figuring out exactly the, like the color, what's the the correct color because it looks different in different shades and all that and all that. Uh, figuring the exact color, color, and then it turns out that this this same exact type of color is the same uh, color used in hospitals, uh, operating room, scrubs uh, for walls for uh -huh. uh, for operating rooms and in nuclear. Uh, control rooms, nuclear reactors, nuclear submarines, the nuclear room or whatever it is, is that same, this this uh, seafoam green color because it has this entire research on this. And the reason that that that's the color in these settings is because it kind of it conveys a calm relaxation. It's supposed to not keep people... I'm not sure what the, the the exact word, but it's 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 a this is a color that for a very specific reason it's used in these settings. It's very interesting, and it's also then when you think about why did you know ashes ashes dress in this color, kind of maybe to you know not arise our suspicion of yeah him. something that's inherently dangerous, but you exactly want, yes interesting. How's the how's Kane? He's holding, not changes. And, uh, our guest? Oh. Hmm? Well, as I said, I'm still collating, actually, but uh, I have confirmed that he's got an outer layer of protein polysaccharides. He has a funny habit of shedding his cells and replacing them with polarized silicon, which gives him a prolonged resistance to adverse environmental conditions it's one of those things where I'm, I'm sure this level of thought goes into some contemporary movies but it doesn't it doesn't feel like it for some reason like the the amount of of attention to detail in alien gets talked about a lot but it really is astonishing and going back to the set to the, to the stromo hero set for a moment like that not only was a fully realized environment but it, it was where most of the movie takes place so like they were able to shoot that from so many different angles. They were able to light it in so many different ways. They were able to, you know, create the appearance of having multiple decks by just having ladders disappear into cubbies. You know, they were able to complete, to create this like entirely self-contained world and just iterate on in that world in such a beautiful way. Like the semiotic language that Ron Cobb developed for the signage, like that, that's, that's amazing. Like what movie does that, you know? 
like what what movie doesn't even make a thing out of it? I mean, when we have a, a, a something like Game of Thrones come out, right? And they're talking in Dothraki or something, and all of this stuff gets made about like, oh, they invented a language for them to speak in the movie. Like nobody talked about Ron Cobb's semiotic alphabet. It just sort of happened in this movie. And then going back afterwards, people were like, well, holy shit, this is this is a self-referential system that he developed that actually like applies great standards of care to the way that you navigate a ship. And it's just like it's just there if you pause and you look for it and you see it all of a sudden. And the movies like that, I mean, any frame of this movie, you can pause and you can lose yourself in it. And that is just extraordinary. Um, and it, of course, it extends to the costuming. And I, I think it's one of those things where you have, you know, obviously great artists like John Mallow and Ron Cobb and Gear and, you know, these these amazing people doing this. But you also have these teams like Adam mentioned who put in extraordinary amounts of work on a soundstage that was absolutely massive to make this thing come to life. And you you look at what science fiction looked like before Alien and let's go let's take 2001 out of the equation because 2001 is like some miracle from the future that made its way back through time to find us to like well hold off on that. But most science fiction was very aspirational and by that I mean it it looks like where we want to go. Like it looks like bright and it looks expressive. And a lot of the technical stuff is not explained in a way in the environment. It just sort of, you just take for granted that it works. Like there's warp drives and, you know, gravity tethers and things. And instead of having, you know, uh, uh, like actual keyboards to input on, you just have flashing lights. And it's like, it's one of those things where it's it's almost like they're playing a game with the audience of like, oh, this is what the future could look like in the year of tomorrow, you know? But Alien is nothing like that. Like Alien, you walk on that ship and you can navigate it like an actual lived-in environment because it looks like the truck your uncle used to drive, you know, <laughs> like you grew up smelling the diesel fuel from. You're exactly right because that's an, another kind of aspect that, uh, you know, they built the sets in, you know, 1978. They had all these junkyards of airplane parts of from World War II. The sets were built from actual working parts. You know, so this adds to to the to the to the believability of it because you know the seats were actual airplane seats. All these these pieces and and bits and bobs that they built together, they're actually able to you know to to make you know if you flip a switch, a light goes off some some here or there, and that, that's really a, another aspect of the beauty of this film is that compared to you know, previous, uh, you know, sci-fi films where they had to build the entire set from scratch. Here, they just collected all these pieces of actual really working parts. And I really think that that's a, a, a huge part of what, uh, you know, contributed to the, the believability of the sets, which are obviously, you know, look insane. I have a just question. Extending that, oh, just just briefly to, to the costumes for a moment. Uh, like a great example is what Philip Strick calls out in that review where he says, it's amazing that the costumes don't even appear that the, the spacesuits don't appear to be functioning perfectly because they're fogging up like the The fact that they thought to fog the visor up with condensation 
that's 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 what we're talking about. Like it's completely functional. So when Adam's saying that there are, you know, you flip a switch and a light goes on in a place that's far away, but you can tell how it's there because of the circuitry. It's the same thing with the suits. Like the, you can tell if the suit is functioning well in the environment by the amount of condensation on the visor. And that's something we take for granted now because, you know, people do that in post digital shit all the time and people add, you know, breath fog and things. But they, but they they really shot that and it really functions like an actual spacesuit would in an environment that it wasn't designed to operate in, right? It was designed for mining operations. It wasn't designed for exoplanetal, you know, uh, exploration like this. Here's a question for everyone. Um, as we talk about the ship and we're going to get into other things, do you feel like Alien is the first dystopian sci-fi? It feels dystopian to me. And like you were referencing, Patrick, other sci-fi films were aspirational, um, were very utopian. But Alien, I even feel like the characters, they don't come from a world that's like, they come from a world that's similar to the world that cooper lived in in interstellar where things have been the earth has been ravaged um people live off world people live on call in colonies um in other probably galaxies at that point or newly discovered planets i don't know in its realism it feels like a future that is not bright so there yeah there there are companies who own everything and you're working for them but it doesn't feel these people don't seem happy and I don't, and I don't know if that's just because oh they're on a mission and that's the context that we have. But as I think about the larger world, and that's something that we haven't really discussed ever before. And I know we're not probably going to do that in this episode. But what is the world that these people live in? Do they live on Earth? We don't really even know. Um, the closest we get to it is Gateway Station and aliens. But when we are, when these people are awakened or by mother, and then you see them in the mess hall, I don't get the sense. That life is that good. And I'm not just talking about life on the ship. So I'm curious what you guys think. Um, I think I agree with you. This is, it was a kind of a, you know, considering the, the time that the, the, the film was written and made, it was, you know, criticism of, uh, of capitalism, rise of a broad middle class that was overworked and undercompensated. There's definitely aspects of that that, uh, you know, uh, uh, Dan O'Bannon inputted into, into the the dialogue. Um, I love that we do not see Earth, not an alien. I mean, we, we, I think we see Earth, you know, from a greater station in aliens, but we're never down to Earth. That it's always, you know, uh, detached. So... Uh, yeah, I definitely see what you're what uh you know what you're saying. And of course that extends to the casting too, right? Like we've talked about many times that the cast for this movie was not like a young, glamorous, up-and-coming cast, aside from Sigourney Weaver. Like everybody was pretty established. Was that kind of like a strange midpoint in their career? Um, you know, like Tom Skerritt was probably the most immediately bankable person, but he was like pushing 50. Like this, it was kind of a it was like a strange ensemble to have in a movie. And and it signals something about the film, which is that like we're not selling this on the bankability of its cast. 
you know, we're selling this on something else. But I definitely think that you're right, that this comes from like a dejected future and, and that that's really significant. I think obviously we can't categorically say it's the first of its kind to do that. But I do agree with you, Jamie, that this seems to be the most prominent example early on of like a realistic, semi-nihilistic version of the future where capitalism has driven us into the ground. And Adam, I think you're absolutely right that it's because of the context in which this was written. You know, like this was this was well after the like post-World War II economic boom. Uh, in the United States, this was after all. Everybody had their suburban dream and their picket fence and their two-car garage, and uh, you know there were new oil embargoes and there were you know there were conflicts in parts of the world people weren't used to there being conflicts in, and there were uncertainties happening economically, and a lot of people were really feeling that in the mid to late seventies, and it's reflected in cinema of all kinds and in art of all kinds. But what's so cool is that they brought it to science fiction with Alien. Like th this was the movie that catalyzed that mindset in the United States. And what's fascinating is that the the mindset to come after that, which was the Reagan era, was also catalyzed by you know it, it's it's summed up beautifully in Aliens, and in both cases it's a subversive take on it. Right in Aliens, it dresses itself up as this you know Reagan like you know pro America you know go into battle with guns blazing movie and it ends up being something much subtler than that and with alien you know it it dresses itself up as being this very kind of pessimistic vision of the future that ends up having a lot of humanity and heart in it and ends up having people really banding together you know in extreme circumstances uh and emerging you know in their final moments many of them heroically and I think that that's it's kind of a beautiful way to look at it too, you know? Yeah. And my take on it too is always just showing that history is always going to repeat itself, right? You always are going to have the have, the have nots, those who are expendable, those who are profiting off of those people. And I think they were just trying to tell us, it's, you know, maybe it gets better at like, you know, we've always had like decades where it seems better and then things get worse. And, um, you know, I think it's painting a picture of, yeah, where it's better in that we're exploring all these worlds. We have the technology, but it's never, it's always the same story. You're always going to have those that are taken advantage of. So I like that because it kind of grounds us in here we are, another human story with, you know, within this alien world. It sort of grounds us to, yep, where these are us. This is, you know, these are the humans. This is what they're going through. So even that far in the future, we can identify with them complaining about the bonus situation and, you know, all the same grumbles that we still have just in a different setting. I think that's why we identify with them so much, too. I'm curious. I, I would imagine. I, I think for me, again, as much as I love aliens and just am in love with Alien 3, I identify mostly with the characters in Alien. They're the most relatable people. And I, I, it's just, as you just said, Andy time kind of repeats itself so the things that we go through repeats itself and where are we now we're in a, we're in a time where everyone is striking all over the country maybe all over the world and in certain groups whether it's the uaw or sag after the writers starbucks i mean people are striking for fair wages for fair treatment and that was also happening um and starting to happen during the time of alien. So here we are. And I, I can't help but think, will what's happening in our modern zeitgeist iterate in alien Romulus in its own way? If Fede is smart, and I know he is, I think it just, it lends itself 
to this atmosphere that we're in. Like, hey, we're going to be dealing with the same problems 70 years from now. We're going to be dealing with the same problems 100 years from now. Um, they might be dressed up a little bit better. Our technology might have us in the stars, but we're still going to be fighting for good pay, for a better way of living, um, and for fairness. And I love that. And to me, um, and I even think aliens brilliantly, James Cameron brilliantly took that theme and went further with it. Like the first question they have for Ripley is what about our ship? They're less concerned with the lives lost and they're more concerned with the dollars lost. And that just sounds like corporations 101. And that was set up in alien beautifully. Um, and just even the bureaucracy within the ship, they're on this ship and the characters are trying to figure out what to do. And the ship is saying via, you know, uh network, Oh, sorry. This is more important than this. And this is more important than that. And you have to go do these things. And the big question is, well, what about our lives? And even Parker says that, what about our lives? You son of a bitch, you know, it's the same thing that, you know, we deal with on a, on, on a regular basis. I think that is why those first three films are so poignant because they're dealing with things that we deal with as people in, in a different setting. Um, while asking what's out there, what do we do in the face of oblivion? How do we, how do we retain our humanity in that? And the characters in Alien do that beautifully. Well, as you guys can hear, we have a lot to talk about um, in our side green bar, green bar, our side green room, bar. Green bar. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <coughs> We've been having kind of small pauses of conversations, and we feel like this revisiting of Alien is going to continue on a little bit longer. Um, maybe we'll have a, a guest on or two as well, but we're going to continue this conversation and talk more about the characters and who they are, what they are, what they're wearing, how it all speaks to us, and how it works in the film. So please tune in next time. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you, Adam, for coming on the show. To remind everyone who Adam is, uh, Adam Ezekiel from NostromoCrew.com. Uh, he creates original replicas of the costumes and more from Alien. Uh, he is so good at what he does that Adam Savage has owns uh, his own copies of Adam's work, uh, Adam Ezekiel's work, and you can see that on Adam's episode which is it adam ezekiel i think it's uh it's it's called um um like nostromo crew uniform yeah okay that's on yeah. youtube so in addition to being a, a good friend of ours of the show somebody who's been on a number of times adam ezekiel of course also runs nostromocrew.com where he creates incredibly detailed and realistic beautiful garments of clothing props stickers patches you name it relating to the alien films and so uh if you go to nostromocrew.com you will see the handiwork there and uh, please do support him as much as you can give him a follow as well and he also may or may not have uh some of his work appearing in some projects coming down the road that you will be definitely seeing so uh adam anything else you want to tell us about where to find your work uh yeah i'm on uh, nostromocrew.com and nostromocrew on on instagram is and facebook with like the main uh you know channels i i work on uh yeah 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 thank you very exciting and appreciate the if, shout out if you Sorry? guys can buy his work 
There are some of us on Perfect Organism who own some of his stuff, and it's amazing. So please, Patrick and Andy are next. <laughs> I do own props, but um, I, I don't have the do, actual clothes yet. You but, need uh, the clothes. I, I do, do need it. I do need. You do. Well, I lost I the weight, one. so now I can do it. I, I was waiting. Yeah. I, I don't want to buy it <laughs> twice. You know what I mean? So yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. All right. Thanks Thank for you. listening. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for being on the show, Adam, and everybody else. Thanks, everybody. Take care. For more on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.